You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading today is taken from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks, Thanks, Logan. Let's pray, and this is an important passage. Let's let's spend some time reflecting on it. Let's pray first. Oh, Lord, a passage like this, um, the task of preaching seems impossible. There's people in this room who need to take more serious the commands you've given to us in your law. And there's people in this room who have been so beat up by your law, they're prone to despair. And so we humbly come before you and say, unless your spirit properly convicts each and every one of us, we are without hope. So spend your spirit with power upon this, your word, as it's now preached. May your spirit come and convict us of our sins and drive us more to Christ. And in Christ, make us more and more into the people of your kingdom. Speak, O Lord, your church is listening, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, the phrase that my ears are incredibly sort of tuned towards or in tune to is this phrase, the wrong side of history. It was a cliche phrase, obviously, there's good reason to stop using it. But I think it's one of these phrases that sits with us and haunts us even if we tell us the world is more complicated. Uh, Just this week, in the midst of the German parliament, sort of debating as to what to do with Ukraine and Russia, the finance minister again used this phrase and said that uh, anyone who doesn't stand with Ukraine will find themselves on the wrong side of history as a means of stifling all debate. This week as well, as the El Salvador president continued to show his progress in fighting the various gangs of El Salvador, and he showed off his... Supermax prison, where he's arrested some 60,000 gang members. Again, I found a news article that talked about human rights violations and said, cheering for this man, you'll find that you'll end up on the wrong side of history as you back this man. Whether it be abortion laws, laws about gender, laws about sexuality, euthanasia laws, if we're honest, as much as we know that history doesn't have a right side or a wrong side, I think all of us don't want to find ourselves on the wrong side of history. We don't want our grandkids to read and reflect on the things that we are passionate about and we, uh, the ways in which we engage society. And we don't want our grandkids to despair of us. In this passage, Jesus is trying to deal with something of that urge you have inside of you to be on the right or and not the wrong side of history. Okay, He's engaging with that phenomenon that exists in you. And he is going to refer to this as a desire to be righteous. To do the right thing at the right time. 
This desire to be a righteous person, a righteous member of his kingdom. In a sense, whether you're a believer or not, you have this craving to be on the right side of history, not the wrong side of history. And that craving is something that is very, very deep into your bones. And in this passage, Jesus is going to help us wrestle through what it looks like to exhibit true righteousness. True righteousness, okay? Listen, we've been dealing with this Gospel of Matthew. We've been going fairly slowly through it. And Jesus has begun his public ministry. Remember, he began with a sermon that was quite simple. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His, he's, his movement begins to attract large cl- crowds. There's excitement around him, and he ascends into a mountain. And we get this famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And in this passage, he is going to say to those who are listening, those with ears to hear, here's what it looks like to be righteous in my kingdom, okay? On the last day when history is complete, here's what it's going to look like to be on the right side of history, and here's what it's going to look like to be on the wrong side of history. And what he's going to say is that there's two ways we can get it wrong and one way we can get it right. There's two ways in which, uh, we, two negative examples of what righteousness looks like in his kingdom, what righteousness doesn't look like in his kingdom, one positive example of what righteousness does look like. So first, what does Christian righteousness not look like in Jesus' kingdom, okay? How can we get righteousness wrong as it relates to being kingdom people? What are some of the misconceptions? Well, we might say that Jesus, in this passage, if you, if you look at it closely, he's setting up two poles. And one of the ways in which we can get it wrong is by... Uh, by misunderstanding and misappropriating how the law works in our life. Jesus is answering a question that had to have been very real and pressing around him, okay? He's gone into a mountain. Does anyone else remember a character in the Bible who goes into a mountain? You know, Moses goes up to a mountain, and what does Moses find in the mountain? He comes down with the law of God for God's people. Here's Jesus going up into a mountain, and people are wondering, is he going to come down and bring to us a new law, a new way to be part of God's people? Now, you remember... And this is hard for, for people to understand. Uh, something of, say, Hasidic Jewish community, you know how, how, how intensely rigorous they are about obeying God's laws. At the time, the people of God are living in this nation, and their whole life is regulated by God's laws. Their city calendars are regulated by God's laws. The very, the very judicial operations are regulated by God's laws. There's all kinds of ceremonies, and there's all kinds of places to be and ways in which to live in which God's law has regulated that they are trying their best to live out as a nation. And Jesus comes on the scene. He goes into the mountain, and people are wondering, will he bring a new law? And he starts by saying, there's a group of people in my kingdom. They are blessed. Blessed are the, you remember, blessed are the poor in spirit. He goes through all these blessings. Now, if you're, if you're an original hearer of Jesus' blessing, especially one who, who is familiar with God's word, you would say, well, my goodness, the Psalms, what do they say? How does one find, who's blessed in the Psalms? Who's the blessed one in the Psalm? In the Psalm, the blessed one is the one who delights in the law of God. Okay? So Jesus is setting up this question. This is, this is a question on everyone's mind. He's gone into a mountain like Moses. He's pronounced who's blessed in his kingdom. And the natural question that comes out of that is, how does this relate to God's law, which so much regulates life of the people of God at this time? How do we know that we're righteous, and how does it relate to this law God has given to his people? And Jesus starts by saying this, righteousness in his kingdom will not be distinct from the righteousness taught by the law and the prophets. Look at verse 17. I didn't come to abolish the law and prophets. And by this, he's by shorthand saying the entire, what we call the Old Testament. I didn't come to abolish them. 
but I came to fulfill them. By doing this, Jesus is challenging those who might think that Jesus has come to do away with God's law, to bring a new way in which God's people could enact in this world. We might call these people, um, we could call them libertines, or maybe one you know, popular way to think about them is these are irreligious people. People who look at the law, God's law and say, it's too hard, it's too much, I have no hope. Hopefully God will grade on a curve. What is best now is that I be true to myself and be the best person I can possibly be. Focus on acceptance, focus on love, focus on authenticity. These sorts of things will make me right before God. Whatever the law was talking about, somewhere we went wrong. And so what is most important now is that I be a person known by love. Jesus is saying, listen, not a dot or an iota, he goes on in verse 18, the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, the smallest of pin marks. He's saying not one of those is going to pass away. And in fact, in verse 19, he says, in my kingdom, if you relax God's law, even the slightest, you are going to end up on the margins. This is incredibly important. This is a pressing question. Now, let me just say at the beginning of the sermon, I know some of you here, you, you would say, I, I don't believe And you find Jesus curious, and you find yourself deep inside wanting to believe. And you come back, and you think, what is going on uh, with this Jesus stuff? I'm very interested in who he is. He seems so countercultural, so provocative, so cool. And yet, here we go again. Radical obedience to the law of God. This is the very oppression that I do not want to be under. The very thing I don't want to live with. I don't want to have a new list of moral to-dos that I have to carry around. This is the type of stuff that makes me want to keep myself distant from organized religion. Jesus, I find him curious, but this is where I want to get off the train. Now, I want to challenge you that part of why you feel that way is because you have a faulty understanding of the law, of, of, of this law that God gives to his people, but the law in general. You see, God wrote his very law into creation. It's, it's, it's woven deep into the structures of our world, into our DNA, so to speak, and into the, into the very DNA of his creation. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. Uh, my, my yard is fenced, and I have a fence in the backyard, and if you've ever been to my house, you'll know why. Uh, because if you're eating dinner at my house, it'll, it'll feel like an earthquake ha- happens every couple of minutes, and that's just the go train, just raging uh, right behind my house. And every now and then, that gate is open for whatever reason, and I have a dog. And if that dog leaves the, that fence, as far as the dog's eye can see to the west, And as far as the dog's eye can see to the east, it's nothing but open field to run in. And there's a sense in which my dog, I don't know how my dog thinks. In fact, sometimes I wonder if she thinks, but that's another question. If she sees the world outside that fence and says, my goodness, it's nothing but open land to run on. My owners are so incredibly oppressive by putting up this fence, this boundary. How how, how can I believe that they love me? They're keeping me in this small little rectangle of grass when there's nothing but land to run on. In a sense, you can understand how the dog would say, uh, I, I want to be free. I want to go out. I don't want to be with these restrictions. And yet, and yet, when the go train rumbles by, uh, you know this would be the end of my dog. And so we establish this clear fence to keep her away from the tracks. Maybe another way to say it is, you know, I imagine if goldfish had the ability to think and talk to us, they might say, boy, you know, These fish tanks you give us are very restrictive. Uh, We would love to swim and be free. And in fact, as we look through the glass of the fish tank, you guys seem to have a much bigger environment to enjoy. This is incredibly oppressive that you leave us in this fish tank. And you can imagine for yourself, a fish is incredibly precocious. 
who decides to hop out of the water to, to enjoy life outside of the fish tank. Now, I'm being silly, but you understand my point. There is a type of restriction that actually leads to flourishing, that leads to life, that leads to, to delight. And there's a type of restriction that prevents death, that hinders death. What am I trying to argue? I'm trying to argue this, that God's world has always had law written into it. God creates his first human beings, Adam and Eve, and he writes his law into their hearts in a very real sense. They are image bearers of God. And they very quickly rebel against this law by taking the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they attain knowledge that they weren't made to handle yet. And so because of that, they then look at God's law and see all laws as restrictive and unhelpful because they don't have the maturity, they don't have the wisdom to see the bigger picture that is going on. And God, in his kindness, in his kindness, he continues to move in relationship towards his constantly rebellious human beings. People who look to him like a goldfish hopping out of the water. He moves towards them, and he gives them a law, but they are still children. They are still prone to hating and despising the law that's written into their DNA. And so this law is, 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 is the type of law you give to a child. I don't explain how electricity works, mostly because I don't know it, but I don't tell my kids how electricity works as I sit by the outlet. I tell them, don't stick a fork in that outlet. It will kill you. Do not stick anything in this outlet other than what's designed to be stick, stuck in here. I don't sit there and try to explain to them how electricity works and how wonderful and powerful of a tool it is and how we could misappropriate that tool through a variety of ways. No, I don't have time for that. I say, don't put things in this outlet. It's not for you. Don't do it. Listen, this is how God reveals his law to the people of Israel. It's, how, it's why he puts it on stone. And that's why it's formed in so many negatives. Do not do this. Do not do that. He has to treat us like children because our instincts are constantly towards rebellion and running away from his law. And he knows that our brains have twisted the purposes behind his laws that we just can't see clearly. Every one of his laws were made for us to flourish. They were made for us to, they were restrictions that were set up that we might flourish like the fish in the water. And yet we can't see it because we've chosen to rebel against God, because we chose to take knowledge that we weren't ready for. And because of that, God has to give us laws written on stones, very negative laws. Let me illustrate what I'm trying to say this way. I, I think this is a very important point for our church, and so I want to try to think with me this way. Let's imagine you go off hiking uh, in Dundas, uh, Dundas, Ontario, and you go to that, I don't know if anyone knows that Dundas Peak, you know that rock that kind of hangs out over a super steep, um, it's a big cliff, and, and you know, it's like an iconic social media photo, and you'd go down you know, hundreds and hundreds of meters if you fell off. And there's all kinds of fences that prevent you from going to this peak. But let's, let's suppose you hop the fence and you and I are out hiking. And, um, you know, we go up to this rock and you actually say, you know what, I'm feeling real rebellious today. I'm thinking about rebelling against the laws of gravity. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm, you know, rebel culture's in. I'm going to jump. And how would you respond if I looked at you and said, oh my goodness, you can't do that. You know why? If you do that, the park ranger will give you a ticket. These park rangers are out of control. They ticket everything. And it says clearly we're not supposed to trespass here, and jumping is certainly not allowed either. And if you jump, you know what's going to happen. You're going to get a ticket. Now, how would you respond to me if I said this? You'd say, <laughs> okay, yeah, the ticket's not good. Who wants a ticket? But the person's going to die. Listen, God's law was set up. It was structured in such a way that it was to protect us from dying. And what ends up happening, the way in which we handle God's law, the way in which our instincts work is we see it as a checklist of things to do. 
We miss the bigger picture. We miss out that it's trying to provide restrictions which create uh, the environment in which life can flourish and, and sustain us. And we focus on the tickets. We focus on, you know, sort of God being up there in some kind of nanny state going after us. He wants us to have life. He wants us to flourish. And we mishandle God's law. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to abolish the law and prophets. This is where life is found. This is how you flourish as human beings. Let me make some application. I hope everyone's following me here. Maybe one way to apply this is that I know some of you have gotten to a place in your Christian life where you've decided God's law is generally good. But there's a handful of things you know you ought not be doing, but you continue to dabble in these sins. You continue to mess around with them. And you know what you realize? The ticket's bad, but it's not that bad. I can pay off a ticket one day. And you, you think you can keep jumping and keep jumping. And somehow that all it is is some kind of ticket from some kind of nanny state God that you'll have to pay off one day. And you're, you're, you're unwilling to see the bigger picture of what's going on. And yet you come to me and you say, man, I'm just so bored in the Christian life. You know, I just, I just find myself apathetic. I, I, I find myself sort of frustrated. And when I talk to you about what, what happened in your Christian life, how did you get this way? I can't help but see almost immediately neglecting and disobeying God's law. Even the smallest of God's laws, things like self-pity or slander, the more you indulge in these things and say, they're not that big a deal. I can pay the ticket on the last day. You don't understand. These things were made to make you flourish, made to make your relationship with God flourish. And the more you turn your back on these things, the more you neglect these things, you're going to find yourself moving towards death, numb in your relationship with God. This is how Jesus relates to the law. He says, look, this law... This is about a much bigger story, but there is not one scratch, not one scratch, not one accent mark that is going to be neglected in my kingdom. And one of the ways we can get righteousness wrong is we can say, whatever it means to be on the right side of history in God's kingdom, we do what we feel is most authentic. We do what we feel, what we feel is most natural. This is not what righteousness looks like in God's kingdom. And you know it. You know it. You've seen it. you experience it in your own life. This is one way we get it wrong, but another way we could get it wrong, Jesus says, is righteousness in his kingdom is not just disobeying God's laws, just assuming they're, they're just tickets to be dealt with some other time, uh, j- j- neglecting God's laws. Another way we can get it wrong, he actually says, is by obeying it incorrectly. Look what he says in verse 20. He says that our righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, who are the scribes and Pharisees? Some of you know this. You grew up in church. The scribes and the Pharisees, these are professional law keepers, okay? They fasted two times a week. I I don't know how many of you have ever fasted, period, much less two times a week. These people were the real deal. They find a dime on the ground, and they're given 10% in the offering the next Sunday. You know, these are people who take the law seriously, the Bible actually makes fun of them, that they're sort of in their spice you know, cabinet thumbing through their paprika each year, making sure that they've given their proper 10% to the temple. These are the people who, whose o- diligence and obedience to the law was an oppressive, oppressive sight to the average Israelite. And, and Jesus is saying, your righteousness must exceed them. Now, why is he saying this here? He's saying that their holiness is on the right track, but they are also missing it as well. You might say that one side of the pole would be this license, live however you want, irreligion. But Jesus is saying there's another side of the pole where you can get righteousness all wrong. And that's obeying like the Pharisees. And we might call their obedience something like legalism. Listen, this has been a huge part of my own Christian walk. I, if I was addicted to anything, 
if I had to end up in a rehab center for anything, would be addicted to being well thought of by others. From a very young age, I was addicted to this. I wanted everyone to like me. This is why the sermons never go long. Hopefully today would be another example of that. You know, I want everyone to think highly of me. And what I found is that when people in the church think highly of you, and when people in the church like you and put you on a pedestal, oh my goodness, this feels really good. This feels very good. And what I found over time was that there were certain sins that brought humiliation in the church especially and in the world in general, and there were other sins that seemed to be not as big of a deal. And so I found myself devoted to Bible reading, or at least telling people I was reading my Bible. I found myself devoted to praying, or at least telling people I would pray for them. I was very devoted to these things because I wanted to be liked by others. I did everything that was asked of me, shared the gospel very clearly when asked, went to foreign mission fields, you know, and, and, and decided I want to send my life, spend my life going and serving our Lord Jesus in foreign and exotic lands. I was rigorous with the media that I watched, you know. I can remember at times looking down my nose at people and saying, oh, that movie? You know, well, there's nudity in that movie. I would never, ever be caught watching a movie like that. I was diligent about this. And on the outside, I looked like I had it all put together. But if you were to scratch in half an inch below the surface, you would know. You would know I was an absolute mess. I was an absolute mess. A self-righteous jerk. I was dealing with pride to a degree that it was almost paralyzing me. And yet... And yet, I was so driven and motivated by guilt and by shame and by fear. I was so obsessed with how I was seen by others that I couldn't even be honest with myself. And I began to drive myself mad. I began to, 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 to frustrate even myself. I had secret sins that I needed help. I needed people to come into my life and assist me and, and help me and give me wisdom about these things. But I couldn't even dare su suggest any of these secret sins to anybody for fear that I might be found out. And over time, what I found out is that I could hardly even talk to God about secret sins like this because I thought I'd also played this game with him as well. That the more I looked put together, the more my ledger kind of balanced out. We might say there's a way of neglecting and ignoring the law. Some of you know this all too well. There's another way of, of, of dealing with this, to say the law is a tool I can use to keep God at bay, to keep God at a distance. And I tell you, I was on the verge of breaking down. The sort of internal hypocrisy was a mess. And I was tempted regularly, regularly to do utterly heinous things just for the sake of exposing how heinous I felt inside. This isn't righteousness in Jesus' kingdom either. Jesus is saying, look, the Pharisees who are pros at these things, they have it put together, they, they have all the outside trappings. You want to know what it looks like in my kingdom? It doesn't look like that. It sure doesn't. That's not the people who are going to make up my kingdom. And he's going he's to say that true righteousness, being on the right side of history in his kingdom, is much more concerned not just with not giving any outward projection of anger, but even allowing anger to fester in your heart. Not murdering somebody is bad, sure, and you might have a good track record with that, but he says this, this law is to go deeper and deeper into your DNA, that you so see the wisdom of the law, you so see it as restrictions by which you flourish, that you find yourself trying to not only obey, but obey for the right motives, and obey when no one can see. And Jesus, for the rest of the sermon, is going to go through things like anger and lust and divorce and hatred and over and over and over again. Say, look, my kingdom is not for people who throw away the law, but it's certainly also not for people who think they can game the system. The obedience I demand is much bigger than tithing your cinnamon. It's much bigger than that. It goes down to doing the right thing with the right motives. This is what it means to be on the right side of history in my kingdom. This is what righteousness looks like. Listen, some of you need to hear this today. 
I don't even think I need to make much application. This hypocrisy that you're living under, this desire to look put together that prevents you from sharing addictive and destructive sins with people, that prevents you from being honest with yourself and maybe even honest before God, it's going to kill you. That is not righteousness in this kingdom. For those who are neglecting God's clear laws, you're jumping off a cliff and you're worried about tickets. For those of you who think you can use God's law to keep him away from you, you're, you're, you're hopping out of the water just as quickly. The end is nothing but death. This is what righteousness isn't in Jesus' kingdom. But what is righteousness then? We have to ask ourselves, what does it look like? What does true righteousness look like? Well, what does Jesus say? He doesn't come to abolish the law, but what? Verse 17, to fulfill it. He goes on to say, not the smallest pen stroke will pass away until what? Until the law is accomplished. Now, first let's ask, what does it mean to fulfill the law? What is Jesus saying? And this is admittedly very tough. And there's, there is a lot of paper that, that has a lot of trees that have had to give their life to wrestle through what it means that Jesus fulfills the law. And I could spend a lot of time talking to you about some of these things, but I don't know that it would be helpful. The best way to think about this is this. Matthew has already given us and used this word fulfill over and over again in his gospel. He says Jesus went down to Egypt and he came back. Why? This was to fulfill what the prophet said. Prophet Hosea said, out of Egypt I'll call my son. Whatever Matthew means by this word fulfill, it seems to me that he thinks fulfill means bringing something to its surprising climax, to its, its surprising fullness, to, to, to fill something up, and a sort of new understanding which we were unable to clearly see in times of old. Not altogether different, but somewhat surprising. It seems to me this is how Matthew uses this word fulfill. He sees Jesus as fulfilling things in the Old Testament that were pointed to him. And now Jesus is saying, actually, this is the very story of the law, the Torah, the law of God. It, it was like painting a template. It was, it was painting a picture of what true righteousness looks like. And as Jesus walks on the scene and as he begins to interact in this world, we start to see, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, this is what it looks like to keep the law. This is what it looks like not just to avoid getting tickets, but to also see the intention of the law and with wisdom work out that intention in society. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. He came to fulfill at least this moral element of the law. He came to show us what it, true law-keeping looks like. And this strange reciprocal relation comes then. We, we start to see now this is what the law meant as Jesus begins to unpack it and explain it. Do not murder goes all the way down into your heart. We say, that makes sense. You know, to be honest, I didn't see it coming that way, but it makes complete sense that this is what God was after, our very inner being, making sure that our inner being is about the flourishing of our neighbor. This, this is what Jesus, we begin to see the law through the template of Jesus, and we see the law, and we say, that's exactly right. This is, who, this is how Jesus fulfills it, the moral law. We could also say there's a portion of the law that dictated all kinds of ceremonies, all kinds of sacrifices, Jesus says here that th these things need to be accomplished. And what we're going to see towards the end of this gospel is in a very real and tangible way, he accomplishes the law. All the ways in which the guilt, all the ways in which the destruction that our behavior brought into this world, the debt we compiled, there was a whole system by which these things could be temporarily wiped out. And Jesus comes not just to be the moral exemplar of what it means to be human, but also to take on that whole ritual system in, in, in himself, put forward a sacrifice that will do away with it altogether, 
utterly transform it altogether, fulfill it altogether, that there might be no more need for sacrifice. He came to do this. He also came, you'll remember, the law included all kinds of laws about what it means to be a nation, the nation of Israel. And this was to be a nation with which as people came and sat under the kings of Israel, their lives flourished. They found out what it meant to truly be human. That's what the kings of Israel were supposed to be for the wider world. And Jesus comes and he says, I am fulfilling this law. Now in me, I become this true king of a greater nation, a kingdom that I am unveiling, that everyone has access to, whether, no matter what your background is, no matter what your ethnicity, no matter how much money you make or how much you contribute to the GDP, now as people surrender and submit to me as their true and great king, those laws of Israel that were trying to make them into the kingdom in which humanity will flourish, they are now subsumed in me. I've come to fulfill and accomplish these things. This is what Jesus is saying. Now you might say, well, this is all good, but what difference does any of this make for me? I'm glad Jesus was able to accomplish it, but what about me? Well, one of the mysteries of the gospel is this, that when Jesus is your king, when you say out loud, when you say publicly, when you say privately in the, the recesses of your heart, when you say all other kings that I've been following have let me down, my true king is Jesus. The greatest mystery in the world happens that all the benefits of this king of all the victories that he won, of the GDP that he has created, of the, the treasury reserve that he's built up, all those benefits now belong to all the citizens of his kingdom. In a very real and a strange way, as you ask Jesus to welcome you into your kingdom, as you hear him inviting you and you say, yes, Lord, I'm here, command me, you find that it's not just that he gives you a new burden of commands to get. He invites you into a nation where all sins are forgiven, where the law has been fulfilled in him. All your sins forgiven, wiped away. Maybe illustrate it this way. A while back, quite a while ago, someone from a church invited me to go to a Leafs game. And they said, we're going through this secret entrance. I thought, oh, that's very awesome. I can't wait to use this as a sermon illustration. And here it is. Uh, you know, um, we arrive and we meet this man who's our handler, you know, in a suit. And, you know, pulls out these, neck, these, brace, these, uh, these lanyards that we have to wear. And I find out, this individual in my church, who I knew fairly well, who had been pretty much disconnected from his father, who lived back in China, his father had been gifted tickets to the front row in the Leafs game. And not only to the front row, but into this VIP entrance in the VIP boxes, not too far from where Drake had a VIP box. And there was nothing that he or I could do to earn our way into there. They weren't even for sale to the public. These, these were very exclusive. But so long as I had that lanyard, in a sense, I could do whatever I wanted. It was all mine. In fact, the handler was constantly asking me. I, I, I've never had ice cream at a hockey game, but you know, when you get a menu that says you can have ice cream at a hockey game and you know in between periods you can warm up, man, you don't feel more elite than eating ice cream right, right on the glass of hockey uh, just to warm up in between periods. Jesus has, in a sense, offered this type of lanyard. He's accomplished what you couldn't accomplish, which wasn't eligible for you. He's offered it to you, and with this lanyard, you get access into him, into his very presence, into his kingdom. But here's the deal. When I wore this lanyard, lanyard do you think I let people know how much of a peon I was that I didn't deserve to be in this box seat? You know? Do you think I stared when celebrities walked by? No! I acted like they should be staring at me. I acted like I belonged there. I wanted to get invited again. In fact, I was trying to win over this handler. Maybe he'd come to know Jesus and we'd get more of these tickets at our church, you know? I wanted to fit in. You know why? Because it was a privilege to be there. And in a sense, I received something I could never have attained. 
And there was nothing I could do to ever get there. And so by virtue of having such a gracious gift offered to me, I wanted to embody gratitude by being the type of person who belonged there. This is the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel is this, that Jesus comes and he fulfills the law in a very real and tangible way in his life. And on the cross as he dies, the curse of the law is absorbed into Jesus Christ. And now he offers, in a sense, this lanyard to join him in his kingdom. And the mystery of the Christian life is this. As you come to know Jesus, as you receive that lanyard, as you, as you find all your sins are forgiven, you know what happens? You find yourself looking back on that law, and whereas before it was seen as oppressive, frustrating, you realize you have nothing to fear. Your, your, your slate has been wiped clean. In fact, you have the positive righteousness of Christ put upon you. And so now God's law becomes beautiful. It becomes a way in which you see Jesus and you find yourself loving who he is and you find yourself loving the type of people he's called you to be. And in the same way you start obeying that law, you start realizing, oh my goodness, I do the right thing for the wrong reason all the time. All the time. In fact, who I am and the recesses of my heart is an appalling thing. And you begin trying to obey from a pure heart. And this cycle starts to take place, this cycle of renewal that at first might feel like a sort of merry-go-round of despair, where you find yourself loving the law and cursed by the law and loving the law and cursed by the law. You begin to realize that this sort of spins like a drill bit. As you find yourself falling in love with the law and cursed by the law, you find yourself renewed in Christ's love for you, repenting, believing what he says is true about you, fighting and falling, falling in love with the law. And this becomes a drill bit that drills down deeper and deeper and deeper until you yourself become the very embodiment, the righteous one, in which follows after this Jesus, a true citizen of this kingdom. This is how the good news of Jesus Christ works. Listen, I'll end with an invitation because I like to be liked. I already confessed that to you. Here's the invitation. Jesus offers to you a righteousness much greater than the scribes and Pharisees. He does. And he offers you a righteousness that's much more certain than hope that he, hoping that he grades on a curve. He offers you the righteousness of his son, like a lanyard being placed on your neck. You can receive it right now. You can trust by faith that he's your king. And the beauty of the gospel is as you receive this gospel, you begin to realize that he, be, he is working a true and deep righteousness into you, motivated by gratitude, motivated by a deep and sincere fear of God, motivated by a love of the world that God has made and the law that he's put into our world. This is the hope of the gospel. I invite you to receive it today. Let me pray. Our Father, we give you thanks. That your son Jesus, he could have come to just be a great example for us, and it would have been a real curse to us. He could have come and lived a perfect life, looked down his nose at us and said, see, it's not that hard. And that would have been a completely righteous of you. And yet in love, he came and was righteous and showed us what it looks like to live a beautiful life, and then offers us his righteousness in this good news that we celebrate every week. And then through gratitude, makes us into truly righteous people, people who despise our sin, who hate the wicked intentions of our heart, who don't want to be known as a legalist or some sort of religious hypocrite, but also a people who don't want to be caught up in this world of just disobeying his laws. Father, we thank you for your work in us and through Jesus into our lives. As we now come to this table, we ask that the benefits of Christ's life and his death, that righteousness might more palpably come inside of us. And that through tasting of these things, you might make us into the type of people who fall in love with the law again. That it might drive us into more despair of our effort. That we might find ourselves more dependent on Christ. And in depending on Christ, more in love with your law. That this, that this would drill deep into our hearts until we become the people who are ready for your kingdom. We ask this in Christ's name.
Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.